what I find, and I haven't seen literature for this, but just because I'm old and I've done this for 25, nearly 30 years, if a child comes to me about seven, eight, nine, ten, they are much more anxious than if I'm dealing with a two-year-old with sleep apnea. A two-year-old will be naughty and they're hard to control. But by the time they've been sleep-deprived for so many years, um, they have a very short fuse and their anger management skills are very poor. And it's not surprising if mum says, oh, yes, she has a psychologist. Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. And I have um, a great uh, pleasure in introducing tonight uh, Dr. Gillian Dunlop. And um, uh, I'll just uh, read her CV. Uh, Dr. Dunlop is a facial plastic and pediatric ear, nose and throat surgeon with a special interest in the airway of adults and kids. She was awarded a medal by the New South Wales Minister of Health on behalf of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons in 2018 for her pursuit of excellence in two careers, uh, in art and surgery. Um, Now, Gillian, I I obviously know what a good surgeon you are. You looked after all those patients uh, over many years. Thank you very much. Um, But uh, can I start uh, by talking about uh, your portrait painting? Um, And uh, I I know um, you've... uh, won the People's Choice of the Archibald, is that right? Uh, it was the Salon de Refuse, but I have been hung in the Archibald as well. Which is amazing. And uh, I know you've painted a few governors, including Marie Bichard, uh, 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 Quentin Bryce. We've had um, uh, Hazel Hawke, uh, then uh, head of the ADF and head of the family uh, law courts. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, I mean, uh, I, I think... Uh, Anyone who's skills, skillful with their uh, hands in, in different uh, professions is great, but to be that sort of accolade in both surgery and art is, is fantastic. Um, so, look, tonight uh, we're discussing basically sort of typical questions parents ask me when I want to refer their young kids off um, for an airway assessment, and normally it's because I see a very narrow palate or I ask questions about their sleep and the parents come back with snoring. Uh, you know, I have a ton of kids that are referred to me with all sorts of um, uh, comorbidities of uh, medical conditions such as uh, um, uh, ADHD, uh, um, you know, um, autism, et cetera, et cetera. So can I ask you this question? Um, and I have actually asked uh, my uh, uh, parents to put together a couple of questions for me, but One of the common questions they ask me, do all kids with sleep apnea snore? No. A third of them don't snore, in fact, and that often puts people off and the diagnosis might be delayed. And, in fact, they looked at what is the most common symptom of kids with sleep apnea, 
and it was the fact that they throw their head back and they stretch out their airway at night. So that's the thing to really look for. Would that be also something you'd see when the kid's falling asleep in the back of the car and you're driving? Uh, Often when they're falling asleep, they might do it that way, but they can do it this way. But basically the poor kid's just trying to stretch open the airway and pull the tonsils away from the back wall of the throat. Perfect. I guess you see that in some of the kids also as they're walking about, they have that forward head posture. I find that that's common. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, I do get a lot of parents who are very anti-surgery and they're going to ask me, you know, can my kids still live uh, if they have no tonsils? In other words, I guess what they're asking me, what's the importance of tonsils? Uh, you know, God's given us tonsils for a reason, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Could you help me answer that question? Well, uh, the tonsil is really just a lymph gland and lymph glands are um, part of your defence system for infection, but you've got 120 lymph glands in your head and neck. So if we take out two tonsils and an adenoid, you'll have 117 left to fight infection. And I explained to parents, look, 22,000 people in Australia have their tonsils out every year and they, they're all just fine. So there's plenty of proof in the pudding. It's already happened, you know, and so many other people. It's fine. Yeah. And um, the other question they ask me, if, you know, they're okay to go ahead with the surgery, they'll say, look, uh, I've heard it's always like the cousin or the, the auntie or someone who's told them something along the lines of, well, the tonsils can grow back, so blah, blah, blah. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, tonsils almost always don't grow back, but adenoids do, and that's where the confusion lies. So I'll just explain where the adenoid is. If you have a look in the back of your throat, you see the little dangly thing called the uvula. Well, up behind that, so up higher but behind, is the adenoid. So that's the nasal tonsil. It's in the midline. And when we take that one out, we have to leave about 10%. And the reason we do that is when you swallow, the little dangly thing swings up, seals off the nose. So um, lemonade or milk or whatever it is you're drinking doesn't go into your nose. So it needs something just to latch onto. So if you've got allergy or if you don't blow your nose very much, you might need to have your adenoids out again. Mm-hmm. So maybe, oh, about 2% of my patients would go on to have a second adenoidectomy. And it'd be more likely if I'd done their first surgery when they were, say, under two. And I think also the question parents ask me is, you know, what is a higher risk, the adenoid, the tonsils? I know certainly from speaking to innocent throat colleagues over the years, they talk about the possible slight chance of increased bleeding postoperatively for um, uh, tonsils. Um, But um, what what about uh, the operation itself? Can you just guide the parents through what is a tonsillectomy? How long would their kids be under? What's the recovery like? This sorts of things. Okay. Um, When we decide to take the tonsils and adenoids out, um we talk about what it means to go into hospital. First up, you have to prepare. You have to make sure you don't have any neurofin or fish oil, anything that's going to thin the blood for two weeks prior to surgery. So that's a really key take-home message when I'm interviewing with the parents. So they arrive at hospital. Uh, we first have to have a COVID test these days. 
but um, we will put the child to sleep with the parents there or a parent in the operating theatre. So even in the COVID era, you're still allowed in the operating theatre. And the going off to sleep probably takes a few minutes. We do it with gas, so you don't have to have a needle. Mm-hmm. And the operation will probably take me about 45 minutes and then the child will wake up gradually, but the parent will be in recovery with the child as soon as the child's awake. Now, the little kid has fasted, so the kid is hungry and the kid wants the parents. So um, the nurses will give mum or dad, whoever's there, an ice block to feed the child. So from the child's point of view, the parent was always there and the parents feel involved because they're there at the beginning and at the end. That's great. That's um, very good for people to know. It probably takes uh, some of the edge off that. I know uh, uh, you, uh, I have some patients I send off for a, um, an MRI and they're very claustrophobic. You know? <laughs> uh, so when you sometimes can talk them through the machine or I have a very good radiologist that uh, lets them, not even on the day they get their x-ray, but just let them walk around the machine and they sit in there for a minute and they have those uh, periscope type uh, windows. Mm. So I think that's, that's really good. Now, you talked about medication beforehand and to not take anything that could increase the chance of uh, thinning the blood. What, what about postoperatively? What sort of medication would they not be able to take? I think Nurofen would certainly be one. Exactly right. Um, there are two different schools of thought regarding Nurofen. It's a great analgesic. That means it takes pain away. But if you bleed, and only 1% of kids will, but if you bleed, the little sticky things in your blood, the platelets, won't come together as well. So that means you're likely to bleed for longer. So uh, I'm very conservative. I say no nerofen. And what we do is we give um, the kids Panadol every four hours and we would give them Oxynorm, which is a kid's endone at nighttime to help them sleep through the night. And little kids are different to big kids. So little kids will probably need pain relief for about five days, whereas kids who are 7, 8, 9, 10 might have it for eight days. Mm-hmm. So the older you are, the better your perception of pain and discomfort and that makes a really big impact on the risk of bleeding because if you don't feel a lot of pain you're going to eat and when you eat you cleanse the wound you're removing some of that slough that can get infected so you're less likely to bleed so a little two-year-old would have one percent risk of bleeding whereas a 16-year-old has got a six percent risk of bleeding Right. So it's actually safer to operate on the little ones than the big ones. And I think um, from all the research that's come out of uh, you know places like University of Chicago with uh, uh, David Gazelle, et cetera, the earlier you can get that child back to normal sleep, normal oxygenation, uh, exactly. the, the huge improvement on their cognitive performance at school and in class. So mm-hmm. I, I really see that with kids. And, you know, those kids where you play catch-up, even when they're seven and eight and get this done, you know, some find that damage is already there and that's very hard for them to recover. What I find, and I haven't seen literature for this, but just because I'm old and I've done this for 25, nearly 30 years, if a child comes to me about seven, eight, nine. 10 
they are much more anxious than if I'm dealing with a two-year-old with sleep apnea. A two-year-old will be naughty and they're hard to control. But by the time they've been sleep deprived for so many years, um, they have a very short fuse and their anger management skills are very poor. And it's not surprising if mum says, oh, yes, she has a psychologist. Right, right. And that's very different to even 20 years ago. You know, we never talked about those things, but it's a real entity now. Oh, yeah. I mean, the number of kids that I see uh, that have at least OT, you know, probably speech-related issues Mm. uh, on a myriad of medications. Ritalin seems to be a very common one. And yet no one's bothered to assess the airway or ask those. So I always say to my parents, look, Here's that very simple. I like the Bears questionnaire. It's quite simple for parents to answer. And, uh, you know, when all that comes back, uh, yes, 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 I say, look, I think we need to look a bit beyond that. And so it's really good to work with, you know, some doctors like yourself who, um, who understand those implications, particularly when it comes to, um, child sleep and also their facial growth, because that's always mm-hmm. been a controversial um, uh, topic. Can I, can I ask you one other question? Um, can I, can I just comment yes. on it? Um, Do you remember about five or six years ago, the ABC put on a program with six kids with ADHD and they tracked them over six weeks? Yes. Well, one of those children had to be removed from the program because when they did a sleep study, lo and behold, it was sleep apnea that was making the behaviour so poor. Yes, yeah. Because little kids get wound up when they're sleep deprived, whereas adults get tired and sleepy. Yeah, and I think... um, I know for myself, when my kids were young, if they sat up past their bedtime for one or two hours, they didn't get tired. They started climbing the walls. And so <laughs> I, I, always, I always sort of remember that. And you see that. I mean, you know, uh, you know general dentists who, as you know, um, refer patients to both of us and uh, we try and educate them in this field, they always have that kid who, you know, won't sit in the dental chair but will jump up and down and slide backward and you always... You know, and they've always put that down just to bad behaviour. But then when they now sort of ask the questions like, um, does your child snore? You know, uh, how long does your child to get to sleep? Do they wet their bed? All those sorts of things. And they, they, they see the link straight away. And the parents are just ever so grateful when they're the only person or the first person that suggested, hey, why don't we go and see any nose and throat doctor? Because I think your, your child probably has some nasal obstruction leading to poor sleep, leading to these problems we're seeing. Uh, because otherwise they're sort of clutching with straws, aren't they? I feel sorry for those parents. Well, uh, especially when they're only offered medication. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I read somewhere, uh, maybe you'd be better at this, uh, than the, but I read somewhere that Australia per capita has the highest amount of Ritalin use than any other country in the world. Mm. And you've just got to question, and I'm sure there is a genuine uh, indication for that but well, some of the studies I've read when they've done sleep studies on these kids who've already been diagnosed with ADHD a lot of them come back I think one study was 48 percent um uh, total improvement after T's and A's uh, mm. uh, and you know but just just asking that question like uh how much of this is related to to, to poor sleep um so I know a lot of my parents um will wait till school holidays to get the operation done and, and I know from speaking to them um, uh, that you do prefer kids not to go back to school for at least a couple of weeks after the operation. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, we say two weeks. You need two weeks off school. The first week is about pain relief. Mm-hmm. The second week is because we're trying to reduce the risk of bleeding. So uh, if you look at a wound and wound healing, the cells are turning over all the time. We call it granulation tissue. Now, you're far more likely to bleed on day five, day eight, and day 11 after the tonsillectomy. It can happen on any day, but they are the peak days, and it's because of the turnover of cells. So even though uh, the little kid will say, I'm fine, I just want to go out and play, you still have to have them watching DVDs and um, being reasonably quiet at home as best, you know, a two- or three-year-old can be quiet or five- or six-year-old. And um, from what you're telling me, it seems like there's so many benefits to getting younger uh, yeah. you know, uh, for for their academic performance, for uh, the uh, healing, etc. When is too young for a tonsillectomy? Would you ever do it in a baby, for instance? Oh, good question. Um, what I find is that I do one child and then the mother says, look, Um, their little brother is similar but different. And so you listen to the story, and fair enough, we're all individuals, we all present slightly differently. But the little brother might be, say, two and a half. Now, I don't have any problems operating on a two and a half-year-old, but when mum comes to me with an 18-monther, that's a bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the answer to her question, can my 18-monther have an operation, is something you have to be um, a little bit judicious about. Every case is different. So if the 18-monther weighs something like 13 kilos and they're good eaters, uh, look, I would have a sleep study first, but then I'd be happy to operate on them. But I won't go under 13 months. So under 18 months. So if mum comes to me with a child who's under 18 months, I say, look, it'd be great if you had the operation, if the sleep study was positive, but you're not going to find anywhere where they'll operate on you. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is the waiting time at the Children's Hospital Westmead is around about a year for this sort of surgery. So by the time you have your operation, you're going to be two and a half anyway. Right, right. Whatever. So I say to mum, okay, Let's do this as a staged procedure. You know, you're having trouble sleeping because your child's having trouble sleeping. Um, There are all sorts of issues uh, and people are unhappy at home. Let's do something. Let's do the adenoids. And we'll do the adenoids and we'll come back later. And the child may be reasonably well until about age three. So... uh, We know that at some point we'll have to take the tonsils, but we may get a little bit of mileage. And the kid will be slightly older by the time of surgery. Now, um, I've said take the adenoids out. Uh, That's day surgery, and it probably takes uh, a third or a quarter of the time operatively to do. Um, There's minimal pain, so they might have one dose of Panadol that night. So there's much less what we call morbidity associated with adenoidectomy as opposed to adenotonsillectomy. So that's my way around the question. It depends on the child's weight mm-hmm. and just how young they are. But look, if there's a question of doubt, we just do the adenoids and come back later. Excellent. Um, 
can you talk to me? We we all we, we know about the signs and symptoms of these kids before they present to you and before I would see them. Um, but what sort of changes uh, do do the parents see in their child after the operation? Well, straight away, and I mean in the recovery room, mum or dad, whoever's there, will see that the child is sleeping quietly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing is they'll be even more quiet in about four days' time when the swelling has gone down. So they're just so impressed with the fact that there's no noise. Yeah. Uh, when I see them post-op, mum and, and dad and the child, they often say, look, he's sleeping through the night and he's so still. We have to look and make sure he's breathing because right. they're so amazed that it's different. Yeah, yeah. And the next thing they say is, look, he, he plays quietly now. They're just so amazed that the child is more settled. But if you think about it, the kid's just getting good sleep yeah. and so they're happy. Yeah. And, and I think I'm sure you, maybe it's on YouTube. or I, I remember chatting to a dad of a patient that you'd operated on yeah. and the kid's behaviour was so different and he, you know, he'd gone through, he was a bit of an older child. Um, was there something you did on video or that someone could, uh, people can watch? Uh, that was a lecture I gave with you in Randwick. That's right. That's Dad right. came yeah. along. Um, the, on my website is the video of another child who mm-hmm. was just unmanageable. Poor mum was a journalist and she had to give up her job for two years because nobody could look after this child. He was just all over the shop and they could never get babysitters because he was a terror. So finally um, the child yawned one day and mum looked in and saw these enormous tonsils and thought, oh, my goodness, they're huge, took the child to the GP. The GP sent the child to me and a sleep study was done and the child had um, moderately severe sleep apnea. Wow. Wow. Yeah, did incredibly well. And I think on the video on my website, he's just happily playing with his trains yeah. at the end. Yeah, it's such a life-changing uh, experience for these kids. And, you know, I get parents who always thank me for picking up the problem early and, and mm. saying, look, now you've really got to go and get an opinion. Because, unfortunately, uh, I just find some of the, and I don't know what your comments are on this, but uh, the dentists are certainly on board with this and they are looking in the mouth for mm. such a long period of time, they can see normal and abnormal. So they can see those, the Malin-Party index and the, uh, and, and the battered uvula that, you know, you were referring to earlier that's red in edematous. Um, what, what about the average medical doctor? Because I do get some parents who are all ready to go and see you. And then they say, oh, no, we just want to check with our GP. And the GP says, oh, no, the, the kid's fine um, unless they get five episodes of tonsillitis a year, we don't really need to do anything. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, unfortunately, in the old days, people used to gargle aspirin for pain relief, and it was a fabulous agent for pain relief, but the problem was it thins the blood. That's why old people take it. Right. So for many years, people had their tonsils out, and then they gargled aspirin or swallowed aspirin and of course it increased the rate of bleeding so it became an operation to be feared mm-hmm. so um, you and I are of a generation where the pendulum started to swing away from surgery because if, if you ask your parents they'll say oh yes everybody had their tonsils out 
And it was an operation for recurrent infection, but it was also an operation for failure to thrive. And they didn't realize it at the time, but of course the failure to thrive was the sleep apnea. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the aspirin became an issue and um, the general feeling was that you had to earn your tonsillectomy. So a paper came out in the scientific literature that said you had to have it six times for two years in a row, six times a year for two years in a row. And uh, that was in the era, I think it was the early 70s, but it was in the era when not many women worked. So if the child was home, well, that wasn't a problem because mum was home as well. But um, when I went through training, we were just starting to talk about sleep apnea in children, and I'm talking 30 years ago. So um, it was an operation that ENT surgeons knew about, but the general um, GPs, for instance, didn't. And so you've got a whole generation of doctors who are our age and younger who don't know very much about it. And then what happened was um, the medical training changed to being postgraduate And so they had to cut the course down. So now ENT surgery, the training of um, medical students in ENT surgery is now optional. Oh, really? Yeah, it's actually (laughs) optional, which is... I can't believe that. (laughs) You think of how many things uh, go into a GP's office that are ENT, it's staggering that it's optional. I always feel that, you know, if if you're... if you're born in Australia, there's a high chance you have some allergy because we're, you know, we're 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 not the indigenous people for this area. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is, if you're lucky enough to escape that, we're a sporting nation, so you're probably going to bump and break your nose at some stage. So, <laughs> I, I I just I would say, you know, if any of my kids ever want to specialise, I would say, look, become an ENOS and throat doctor. You're just busy. (laughs) So so to think that that's not part of the Meckler curriculum, but, you know, it's interesting. My specialty in orthodontics, they've also reduced that for the same reason. Mm. Um, uh, Because, again, in the past, everyone just thought, uh, well, that's just an aesthetic thing. You want straight teeth or not. But just so much goes now into the whole understanding of facial growth. And this is where I had my interest, where I saw in my undergrad uh, or my postgrad training uh, in orthodontics uh, that there were so many kids who had a high correlation between mouth breathing, snoring, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the malocclusion. And uh, as you may or may not know, I finally put all my data together for my PhD. And uh, this mm-hmm. started many years ago with Professor Linda Aronson in... Um, oh, yes, yeah. 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 Uh, and he he was the first guy who I'd already graduated as an orthodontist. So I had no idea about airway or breathing. Uh, uh, I just, we, we were taught, you know, kids are crowded because mum has big teeth and dad has a small jaw, whatever. Um, and then I, I did a sabbatical in Karolinska Institute uh, where I, uh, he just published that quintessential paper uh, on following kids post uh, adenectomy. Mm-hmm. And seeing their facial changes. Um, back then, of course, no one really was measuring sleep apnea, etc. But they were they were looking at the long face versus the short face. Can you make some comment on what you see in in those kids who are habitual? You used to we used to call it, I believe, adenoidal facies. What, yeah. what, do, what do you think about those kids who are mouth breathers? What, what could possibly, uh, other than their sleep and the sleep apnea and their behaviour, what about facial changes? Um, I can see the kids when they walk through the door 
-hmm. And you just see the dark rings under their eye, the long face with the mouth open, and uh, the bucky teeth, frankly. Yeah. Um, and as you say, they walk around with their head slightly forward. Um, I must admit, these days they've got masks on, um, so it's a little harder, but they don't look happy. Yeah, yeah. And they're not well kids overall, and they tend to have runny noses because they just can't blow properly. Yeah. Yeah. So blow their nose. Um, I... I'm with you. I think that um, the tonsils and the adenoids have far more to answer for than just recurrent infection. Yeah. That's a very simplistic model, you know, just to think of them as fighting infection and they can get infected themselves. Um, They have so much more to do with uh, the dental health and the facial growth and well-being of the child and academic performance of the child. Yeah. So that's where it's such an important issue. And I don't mind where the referrals come from. And to be honest, I would say about 20% of my referrals come from mothers speaking to other mothers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because people these days are educated and they can look online and they can read up on these things and they realise, hey, something can be done about this. And is it possible for a parent to self-refer to you or they always have to go through the medical uh, dental model? Um, to get your Medicare rebate, you have to have a provider number on the referral. Okay. So that's a government requirement. Okay. Okay. And if people, um, after listening to this podcast, um, uh, want to uh, take their child to see you, what's the best way for them to contact your staff or you know, when they go to their GP saying, look, I have concerns with my kid, uh, we'd like to get a referral to, you know, Dr Dunlop. What, what, what mechanism would you activate there? Oh, they just have to ring up. But um, I would first suggest that they go to my website mm-hmm. and they look can you just, at... Can you just tell us that website details? It's... Uh, uh, well, there's just Google Gillian with a G, Dunlop, and yep. it comes up. And then you click onto the website, you click onto the video, and there's one that says kids and sleep apnea, and that's eight minutes. And it just summarises what we're going to go through in the appointment. And one of the points it makes is bring along a little iPhone video of your child sleeping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on the website is the office phone number. Uh, I mean, I can give it to you now, but it's probably best if you just have a look on the website. And I think... Uh, the best idea is to read up on it um, in reputable uh, areas. Um, so my website's a medical website. It's also a rhinoplasty website, but you'll find the um, tonsil and adenoid uh, section. And that, that's so important these days with Dr. Google, isn't it? <laughs> you, you can, <laughs> I think some parents get themselves confused because, that, you know, they, they don't limit their search engine, do they? And, and half the stuff that comes up is just all these old wives' tales. And things. Mm-hmm. So it's good to, to yeah, that's, that's an important point. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for taking out the time. And I'm sure a lot of the parents um, have learned a lot. Uh, and those who've been through the experience, I, I know, always say, look, it's a life-changing uh, uh, 
a thing for their child. And I get parents who come back to me and say, Dr. Mahoney, you give me back a different kid. And uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think um, uh, thank you very much for what you're doing and looking after all those lovely patients that I've sent you. They always come back very, very happy. Um, so uh, I'd just like to sign off then for this episode of the podcast. Let anyone know if they'd like to get more information uh, on their kids' breathing, sleep, uh, the possible need for tonsillectomy or a sleep study, please visit uh, Dr. Dunlop's uh, website. Thank you for listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.